We're gonna rob a bank. You want some coffee? Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television we're obsessed with. Right now, we're watching American Gods. I'm Annalee Newitz, I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and my guest this week is Amal El Mohtar. She is an award-winning fantasy author of a lot of different short stories, which you can read online, and she's also a critic. She deals a lot with fairy tales and sometimes with Middle Eastern culture in her work, and so I'm very excited to talk to her about this episode, which deals explicitly with immigrants from the Middle East in the United States and their experiences. So let's get started. So I just kind of want to go over what happened. This was a pretty action-packed episode, and it started the way a lot of the episodes have, and a lot of the episodes will, where we start somewhere in America, and we have this scene of a woman making dinner. This is a scene that's totally not in the novel at all. It's completely invented for this series. And she dies while she's cooking, and then Anubis comes, and she says, This is a Muslim home. Why does Anubis hold out his hand for me? And he gives her this whole explanation of why he's there. It was interesting. I mean, what did you think about that whole scene and how they handled it? I have so many (laughs) thoughts and feelings about this. So first, I feel like I need to lead with a disclaimer that I am not Muslim. A lot of people assume I am because my name is an Arabic name. And that that assumption, I think, speaks a lot to the fact that Arabness and and Muslimness are often conflated, especially in American discourse. I don't want to start kind of lecturing about that because I literally will never stop. But so I just want to start like just by saying that I, I am not saying this as a Muslim. My, my discomfort with that scene does not stem from my being Muslim. Although but it's I, interesting that that scene kind of reflects exactly what you're describing about people it does. assuming that because yeah. somebody is from the Middle East, they must be Muslim, unless they're from Israel, in which case they must be Jewish. Which yes. Is also not true. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Actually, um, <laughs> maybe I can lead into this with an anecdote that also involved a cab driver. Uh, so maybe it's it's relevant. I was in the uh, United Arab Emirates, where I lived for for a time. I just arrived and I was in a cab by myself with this dude who was striking up a conversation and stuff. And we were sort of trying to navigate the difference between his Arabic and my Arabic, which was a vast difference because he, I think, was Afghani. So he had learned Arabic after Urdu and like definitely was inflected with that. And also he was living in the Gulf, which is very different Arabic from my Levantine Arabic because my family is from Lebanon and Syria and stuff. So it was like we were trying to kind of navigate this. And, and in the Middle East, this thing happens where... Actually, we weren't even in the Middle East, what am I saying? Anyway, the point is, <laughs> he was asking me my religion, just kind of point blank, which is like, I find super rude, but is is something that he was doing. So he was like, so you're Muslim? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. And he goes, oh, okay, you're Christian. And I said, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> and there was this really long, awkward pause. And then he went, are you Jewish? And like, like he was scared <laughs> of me saying that maybe I, I was like, no, no, there are other options <laughs> besides these things. Worship but, um, Anubis, dude. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? So uh, anyway, all this to say, but, but to bring it to the scene, though. So this, maybe I should say in general about this episode, like the, the discomfort that I had with this scene is is kind of 
reiterated and, and shifts a lot over the course of this episode, which I genuinely thought was a very good episode and probably the best so far, just in terms of its structure and engagement with the book and a bunch of other things. I really enjoyed it for the most part, but it did make me really uncomfortable. And the reason is this, it's that it, it reminded me a bit of stuff that you were talking about on the last episode of the podcast to do with assimilation and how this book talks, like basically engages with assimilation as a theme a lot. And I feel like in attempting to put forward a view of people from the Middle East, let's say just generally, that is not a racist caricature, that is not hyper-violent, and that is in many ways kind, what they've been forced to do in the show, or what they've chosen to do, is to kind of melt a whole bunch of regional variation into one kind of pan-Arab idea, which isn't really, it didn't work for me in a lot of ways. This is reflected in a bunch of different facets. So in the first place, the woman in the beginning is supposed to be Egyptian originally. She doesn't sound Egyptian <laughs> at all. Like her, the, the way that she pronounces her son's name, she says like Asaf, you know, and it's just, it's not a pronunciation of that name that she would have if she were Egyptian. I, I feel really awkward trying to talk about people's accents on TV shows and stuff, but she just, uh, she was supposed to be Egyptian and there were just elements of that that didn't ring true for me in the way that she was depicted, but also the fact of her being Muslim and then to have that whole bit at the end where uh, of that scene where She's asking, uh, wait, is this actually allowed? I mean, will I be able to see my grandmother again if, if I do this? And then, like, ostensibly Bast, <laughs> the, the hairless cat, you know, just kind of, like, trips her into the gate. It was really uncomfortable for so many reasons that I'm, I'm struggling to articulate. And I think one of them is that the first thing that she says in a bit of kind of like, oh, look, immigrants are kind of racist moment to uh, to Anubis when he comes in is, look, if you're here to steal things, you know, because you're a black dude at my door, right? And he says something like, uh, if only I were merely a thief or something like that. But then the end of that scene does in fact make him out to be a thief, like that maybe this was actually all this tenderness and kindness that he's showing her is actually a con in a similar way to the way that like maybe Anansi is supposed to have conned the people in the hold of the ship and that Wednesday is conning people and stuff. And this idea of like faith as ostensibly a con is riddled with problems for me but it's there some of those problems are in the book and some of them I feel like the show is leaning into a lot but it's a different dynamic when the con is from old world gods sort of messing with someone's Muslim faith versus that happening with Christianity for me. Like the dynamic is just fundamentally different. And the feelings that I had about the scene were different than the feelings I had about the uh, Ifrit scene because like Ifrits and Jinn are part of, Muslim, of, of Islam syncretism. You know, they're built into it. They are like, that is an instance of pre-Islamic stuff being absorbed into Islam. That isn't the case with Anubis. That was what, to me, I found really odd about that scene because, you know, people who grew up in Egypt did not grow up with, you know, the myths of Anubis and the Egyptian culture that existed at Memphis, you know, 3,000 years ago. The people who believed in that stuff are all gone now. They were basically mm -hmm. slaughtered by, you know, not even slaughtered, but just sometimes slaughtered, sometimes replaced by, mm. you know, new populations. And to the extent that that group of people 
that were building the pyramids and that were, you know, living in Egypt, you know, before the Romans came and before, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Islamic forces came, those people, some of them, there's some, there's some theories among anthropologists that there's groups in Southern Africa who may still kind of carry on some of those belief systems, but Mm -hmm. there wouldn't have even been any cultural continuity. It's like saying that, because you grew up in St. Louis, that you would have belief systems of the Indians that lived there a thousand years ago. It doesn't, right. there's no cultural continuity there. It's it's two different groups, one replaced the other one. And this is the thing, like, if if this woman in this in this opening scene, whose, whose name, I've, I don't, does she, does she have a name? I can't remember. A uh, nameless lady. She might, we can call her Imasef, I guess, like, in as much as she's the mother of Asaf. But um, anyway, point is that, like, if she were a character, right? And if like her character was that she grew up in Egypt and was fascinated by those stories and, you know, was more drawn to those than her own, like than her, her home faith and stuff like that. And, and that that is the reason for why Anubis turns up. Like I would, I would totally buy that, you know? And he does say like, Oh, but you grew up with stories about me. And so yeah. but just and growing it, up with stories is not the same thing as feeling drawn to them and taking them on as your own identity. Yeah. It also gives like what is supposed to be, I think a, a part of my discomfort and, and difficulty with this scene comes from the fact that I'm really not sure what the show is trying to do with it. Like, it seems on the one hand like this is supposed to be a tender moment. Like here is a psychopomp to show you through to the other side. With the implication being from Anubis that this is his way of saying thank you for those stories. That this is a gift he's conferring somehow, that he is helping her through to the other side. Right. The way that scene ends suddenly makes that suspect. Like, is he just sort of trying to to steal a a follower for himself for the coming end game? Is he ultimately, since faith is a zero sum totality, like, is he stealing a follower from God (laughs) in order to... I hadn't even thought of it that way, but you're so right, because she is basically, she's confused. And it's funny because the scene that is in the book... That, mm-hmm. that echoes this scene the most is a moment when we kind of spend a brief period of time with a woman who uh, grew up in Cornwall, I think in the 18th century. Essie, Essie Tregowan. I was literally just rereading that scene. Yeah. Same, because that is in the novel, you know, she's nominally Christian, but she grew up believing mm-hmm. in the Piskies and believing mm-hmm. in different kinds of, I guess the uh, cousin Jack is the yeah. is the guy that is the Pisky that she, she leaves mm-hmm. out milk for him. She leaves out bread for him. She actively engages in belief activities around Mm -hmm. him. And so when she dies, she doesn't meet the white Jesus, I guess, that she would have met. (laughs) See, I love that scene with Wednesday where where he's like, well, there's brown Jesus, there's black Jesus. Um, But anyway, so she doesn't meet white Jesus. She meets Cousin Jack, who who takes her uh, to the Pisky uh, afterlife, I assume. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense there because we've established in her character, that these are figures who she believes in and has done all these things throughout her life to honor them. Whereas we don't get that sense with this lady here who's like, actually, I'm a Muslim, you know, and who are you? (laughs) Exactly. And and the thing is, like, this is why I, I said that, like, you know, it sits more ill with me than in Christianity, because like Christianity is, uh, or, I mean, you know, people have been trying to make Christianity the default religion of America for, you know, since its founding, notwithstanding 
whatever is in the actual constitution. But Islam does not enjoy that position of privilege in the US. If I mean, it's sort of the opposite. So it was really odd. I, I just haven't, like, I'm, I'm imagining Muslim friends of mine watching that scene and feeling like kind of, oh, look, it is actually, <laughs> it is actually confirmation of like, you know, heathen badness and, and just, I don't know, like it just, I think a lot of the time this show doesn't really follow through on its implications so far. It's it's doing still a lot of setup. So I feel like the Jesus stuff and and talking about Islam does actually point to a problem with the book that I've always had. As much as I have loved this book for my god since I was 16. I I've read and reread and reread this book so many times. And and every time I read it, I find sort of new things to think about in different ways, because I'm constantly changing as I'm reading this book. But one thing that's always perplexed me is the utter absence of monotheism in this, right? And on the one hand, that seems like sort of respectful. It is kind of hard to go there, though. I, I it felt, is hard I to felt go the there. same way. And I know that Neil Gaiman's been asked a million times, like, where's Jesus? And there is yeah. a similar scene in the novel uh, yeah. Wednesday is like, well, you got your brown Jesus, you got your Mexican Jesus, you got this really poor, crappy Jesus over in Africa. He didn't do that well over there. And, <laughs> you know, he doesn't say crappy, but like, basically, it's, you yeah. know, that's a Jesus that hasn't um, been as successful as like the Latin American Jesus. I, I vaguely remember a scene in the novel where he's talking about how, yeah, Jesus does pretty well here, but at somewhere, I can't remember if he says somewhere in Afghanistan or something, he was trying, I found him trying to hitch a ride and no one would give him a lift or something. Yeah, maybe it is in Afghanistan. No? Yeah, I thought it was um, somehow in my brain I'd transposed it into Africa. But um, yes, it's it's basically, there's this kind of gesture at like, yeah. there are places in the world where Jesus isn't doing that well. And actually, Africa doesn't make that much sense now that I think about it. But anyway, the yeah. point is that, <laughs> that you can see why he, Gaiman wouldn't want to go there, partly yeah. because this is a novel that's about older that gods. So fair enough. And he wanted to do this trope with new gods not being the gods of monotheism, but being these kind of idols and things that we that we worship in our everyday lives, not just yeah. sort of on Sundays or on Friday night or whatever. It is a problem. You know, and it is something that people always notice about the novel. But then I think in the show, you're right that there's this kind of troubling, like the show is trying to grapple with something that that the book didn't and mm -hmm. kind of failing, kind of succeeding. You can sort yeah. of see why they tried to do this opening scene in that way. But I, I agree that I think it doesn't it doesn't work nearly as well as the scene later with the taxi driver who you know has his sexy times with the guy from Oman, which is such a great scene. Let's talk about that in one second. I just want to mention quickly another thing that happens in this episode is we get a little bit more Chernobog checkers. Yeah, that was exciting. Shadow got a moon. As mm -hmm. you do, he got a coin that represents the moon. Um, so now he's got another kind of magical talisman that we don't really understand. I mean, it's interesting to compare characters like Mad Sweeney, whose luck is gone now because he's lost the coin. Oh my gosh, that scene was so gruesome and amazing. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about these guys, these sort of basically white gods or European gods with what we see of, you know, gods who are Middle Eastern, gods who are who are a little bit less familiar to the American audience, because it feels, you know, Mad Sweeney feels like a person. And whereas the the djinn, is it a djinn or an ifrit? I don't even know if what it, that character is supposed to be. It's a djinn in the novel. It's a djinn in the novel. I think the passage from the Quran that Salim quotes is to do with the djinn as well. So, I mean, I think usually like 
ifrits are supposed to be under the umbrella of jinn, but specifically to do with fire in a way that... His flaming eyes, which are pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's just yeah. so mysterious. He has like almost... He has a little bit of a personality. Like we get to see him kind of making some bitter comments um, about mm -hmm. Ubar, where he obviously comes from, which mm -hmm. actually is a real place. Um, it's mentioned in the Quran, but it's apparently in the early 90s, a space shuttle was passing over Oman and they sighted the, the city and it was excavated. Uh, so we know that there was something, there really was a city there, and this is apparently where our, our jinn is from. Yeah, I can't let that pass by without mentioning this amazing story by Sophia Samatar called Meet Me in Iram, because Iram is one of the other Ubar, the actual place has a million names, but like Iram of the Pillars is is uh, is like this fabled lost city and stuff. And Sophia Samatar has a stunningly beautiful story called Meet Me in Iram that kind of engages with that. But uh, so anyway, yes, just brief shout out to her because she's so great. Can we can you read that online? Can people find that online? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. I think it I think it might have appeared in like a, a print edition of something like it was doubled with another short story in a really pretty edition. But if it is online, you can probably find it on her website. Awesome. So then we basically have so after we have like a little sort of shenanigans with Chernabog and Wednesday flirting with the Zarya sister, we get this amazing scene, which I know everyone is going to be talking about um, with the djinn. What did you think of that scene? So this scene is actually one of the most memorable ones in the book for me as well when I first read it, because I was reading it in an almost immediately post 9-11 context. So seeing people who are Middle Eastern and speaking Arabic and a, weren't vilified, and B, were queer, was really wonderful. And and was just like startling, was something I hadn't encountered before, and was really interesting. Uh, so I was really curious to see how they were going to do it. I actually found myself broadly enjoying the cab scene even more than I had the book because little little grace notes like when the djinn is talking about like having had to clean the wet shit from the back of the car seat and you see Salim kind of like <laughs> looking askance at it and just slightly moving away like they I think they really played the hell out of it and it was really beautifully done the couple of things that were super distracting to me was <laughs> I hate to harp that I harp on about this but like the Arabic was super distracting because again and here you have characters who are one's a jinn and uh, like you know is talking about ubar and you know essentially is supposed to be somewhere in the gulf right and uh someone who's from oman also in the gulf and the the actor playing salim has kind of clearly learned his lines phonetically in arabic whereas the guy playing the jinn is a fluent arabic speaker but his Arabic is super Levantine. So like he, his Arabic is my Arabic. It's like, I couldn't place his accent specifically. Like I, I sort of want to say Palestine, I, but I don't know anyway. So like the point is that it's Arabic that I understand uh, easily as opposed to like, if I hear someone speaking Egyptian Arabic or Gulf Arabic, there's like, I have to shift my brain into a different mode to, cause the consonants are really different and stuff like that. Like, I mean, you could probably say it's as much the difference between like, I received pronunciation, like a New York NPR kind of accent versus like a, a BBC accent, you know, like there is just a, a marked, really easy to hear difference. So I'm kind of looking at these people um, speaking in Arabic and there are baffling subtitles like the, the Arabic is subtitled in Arabic 
And then over that, you get subtitles in English, I which was confusing. I think that was to signal maybe to the, the Western audience, like, they're speaking in Arabic. You know, I, that's the... <laughs> Like if you're if you're super unfamiliar, you might think, I don't know, they could be speaking Spanish or like they could yeah. be speaking Gujarati. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that didn't even occur to me. That was the thing. I was looking at it going. You didn't get the hint from the cheesy Middle Eastern yeah. music that we were playing. Okay, <laughs> The music was another thing that just like perplexed me because and I felt it was of a piece with. So here's the thing. Like, I totally understand the constraints of television production. I totally understand that you you can't necessarily get, you know, someone with exactly the right accent or exactly the right background to do this thing. I completely get that. But then I find myself going, why do you have them speak Arabic at all? Like, you know, like just it's so the things that are kind of I, I always have a problem in, in TV where something is only done to convey a kind of flavor and um, to, to the exclusion of people watching it who actually know what that is supposed to sound like you know so so it's like we're, we're conveying this flavor only for i don't know a, a, an american audience that just has no connection whatsoever to arabic or the middle east to the exclusion of people who do who are looking at this and going uh, it's just it's so close but not quite but all of that aside the the scene itself was was lovely um and there was so much there was so much tenderness at the same time that I felt super vindicated. I was reading a, a, a Vulture article about like how Brian Fuller reshot the uh, the gay scene to make it gayer. No, I didn't. But I know oh. that in the novel, the gay sex scene is like one sentence long. Like in the novel, it's like, yeah. and then they got in bed and then they were done. And I was like, wow, I'm glad this show gave us like a lot more than that. Because there was like full frontal with like burning <laughs> eyes, like yeah. full frontal with burning eyes is a first for me. And I was yeah. very much there. I think it was a first for television. So I need to read you this bit from this Vulture article because it's so incredible. When American Gods showrunner Brian Fuller first saw a cut of the epic gay sex scene in Sunday's episode, he didn't mince words. I was like, okay, unless he has a 12-inch candy cane cock and can fuck around corners, his dick's not getting in him, Fuller recalled. So you guys need to go back and figure out where holes are. (laughs) It's this wonderful article about just kind of like all of like what what Brian Fuller wanted uh, as a a gay man out of the scene and how to represent it and how to represent it for a mainstream audience. Like it's super fascinating. But I also felt really vindicated by it because as I was watching it, I was like, those two guys are not gay. Like they're just there's literally no chemistry between them they seem slightly awkward there's they're super tender and nice but like it was just kind of I was looking at it going I I hate to make a pronouncement about this but I just don't think I just don't feel it you know from this and then to realize like like the actors are both straight and apparently like have know each other really well and like our friends and stuff was just kind of made all those pieces fall into place for me but the scene itself I mean the scene reminded me a lot of the scenes that we've had with Bilquis where it's this sort of like cosmic sex that isn't really about you know it doesn't really matter if the if the people in it are kind of awkward or don't really have Mm. chemistry because they're having sex on like a desert plane and they're like made of gold or I don't I don't know what actually happened at the end of that scene but it was there was definitely somebody turning into bronze at some point yeah turning into like black statues with fire in it's true and the thing actually found so I found the sex scene really different from the Belquist ones because it had 
like genuine tenderness. Like it wasn't like the Bilquist scenes. Bilquist is just she's using these people for worship, right? She's um, demanding that they that they worship her, and she it is. It's very much like you know, you will be mine now kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And she's literally consuming them as well. So whereas the Ifrit is really like, he has not met Salim trying to manipulate him into a situation where he can get something out of him the way the other gods have. And that's what made it really remarkable to me and really lovely was the fact that it's like super consensual. It's it's kind. It's they're they're meeting not only as equals, but as people who are literally going to exchange lives. And that was lovely to me. So I felt that the sex scene, about 85% of it <laughs> reflected this. And I say this only because I was like, I was really, really moved by the sex scene. Like when, like the, the explicitness of it and so on was moving to me. And I felt like it was being cast to be tender and lovely. When I say that, like they felt like two straight dudes to me, it was more things like when they're holding hands in the elevator or like looking at each other and stuff. I was like, I'm just not, I know, I know what vibe I'm supposed to be getting from this, but I just don't feel that. But when they're actually like naked and like a tangle of limbs together and stuff, I found that really beautiful and something that is so absent from television most of the time. But when I say it's 85%, Roughly, it's because whenever they cut to their O faces, I was I just started laughing. Like I was just like, oh man! Like it just sort of undercuts the kind of solemn loveliness of this. You can represent sex in a bunch of different ways, right? I mean, sex can be intimate and hilarious and awkward and clumsy and stuff all at the same time, for sure. But I feel like you kind of make an aesthetic choice when you're representing it for television. And that aesthetic choice was like 85% solemn and lovely and 15% over the top and wacky. <laughs> so it was like that lot. I mean, it's just. I have a really important question, not about the sex per se, which is like, mm-hmm. what the hell happened? They switched bodies? Like, was this like a Bilquist no. situation where like the djinn ate him? Salim or no 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 um I think what's supposed to just happen is I mean what happens in the book is that the jinn has taken Salim's identity like he is he's taken his suitcase his clothes and stuff and left his own clothes and his own ID with the implication being like look we each hate our own lives let's try out each other's and there's this really great moment where like he focuses in on in the book again on the the taxi ID that he had as a driver and that it's supposed to be like slightly scratched out and generic and and doesn't actually look like the jinn and doesn't actually look like Salim but you know and, and and like that to me felt like a however unintentional, (laughs) a metaphor for America's idea of brown people generally. It's like, you all look alike. You just keep trading your taxi medallion. It's no big deal kind of thing. I actually didn't even understand the scene in the novel. I I actually saw this episode before I read the novel because I I just read the novel like a few weeks ago. And so... Um, So I was like, okay, the novel will now explain to me what happened. And so I actually hadn't even, I'm glad that you figured it out because I (laughs) completely was like, I thought that it was something magical that had happened, but actually it sounds like, no, it's not magical. They just switch. This is the thing. It's like, he says, I don't grant wishes, but in the end, like, you know, he has sort of granted his, uh, Salim's wish to to be someone else to, you know, and Salim has in turn kind of, you know, given the djinn something in terms of worshipping him a little and, and seeing him as something really beautiful. But it's in a way that isn't predatory. Like, this is the thing that makes it so lovely and so different from what we've seen so far in the rest of the show. All the gods are predatory. 
in in the rest of it, you know? I mean, maybe not the Zorayas, but, you know, Chernobog is, and Mr. Wednesday is, and Anubis is, and Mr. Nancy sort of is. Like, there's a bit in the book as well that I was surprised was cut just because it makes that scene so much more intelligible. It's uh, like there's a bit between them where the djinn is saying, you know, driving a cab in New York is easy because all the avenues run north to south and all the streets run east to west. And then, like, Salim has that same thought at the end as he's looking at the, the keys and the ID that the djinn has left him. And he's like, oh, well, I mean, how hard could it be? Basically, the, the avenues run north to south and the streets run east to west. So that's when, like, he just kind of makes a decision to, to do that. And I really liked that. I especially liked it because of... Like, there seems to be all the subtext that, like, Salim is queer, so he's now in a place where he can pursue that a lot more freely than he presumably could have in Oman, so... Jin is probably going to be a really good trinket salesman. Right, exactly! You know, like, he might be able to use, I, I don't know, some kind of power of, of persuasion. <laughs> exactly. Look into my burning eyes. So, speaking of kind of crappier gods who are um, less consensual, we kind of conclude the episode with this hilarious scene of uh, the bank robbery where yes. um, Shadow makes snow, we mm-hmm. which is, of course, very confusing to him. Mm-hmm. And we kind of end, well, we end with a couple of kind of key moments, but we, we mostly end with this scene where Wednesday and Shadow are driving and Shadow's just like, what the hell? Like, everything feels like a dream. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to believe in. And Wednesday's like, well, what's the big deal? You know, like, and this is after they've already had that funny exchange about Jesus where, you know, Wednesday treats faith in Jesus like, well, whatever, like lots of people need Jesus. So there's a whole bunch of different colored Jesuses. And like, you know, there's the illegal immigrant Mexican Jesus. And like, there's all this other Mm -hmm. stuff. So Wednesday is taking this kind of, he has a very, uh, well, he's a trickster. So of course he Mm -hmm. has a, a kind of goofy relationship with faith. But at the same time, he's kind of trying to persuade Shadow to have more faith, um, which is interesting. And so do you think that this is a moment where we're finally seeing kind Mm -hmm. of a a nice side to Wednesday or a more like a more spiritual side? Because so far, Wednesday has been kind of a dickhead. Like, I still don't really like Mm -hmm. him that much as a character. I mean, I think he's funny and interesting, but like, I don't sympathize with him at all. Like, I, I, you know, not the way Mm -hmm. I do with Shadow. Yeah. Although, I mean, that is super mitigated. I'm very deeply confused by the relationship between them because I could watch Ian McShane forever, whereas the character, of, the, the actor playing Shadow, I think is really great, but the character that they're giving Shadow in the show is really confusing me. Your question was whether or not we're seeing a, a nice side to Wednesday. I think so. <laughs> the question that I thought you were asking at first was, do you think that we're finally seeing Shadow just accepting that there is magic in the world? Because I am so tired of them having the same conversation over and over and over about it, where it's like, because like in the book, Shadow's defining characteristic is his kind of go with the flow affability. Like, so he's being introduced to all these gods and he's like, yep, okay, cool. Yeah, gods. Yeah, you know, whatever. And he's not really phased by it. The the character in this show is being directed to act like everything is so wacky and he's got all these crises happening all at once and it's just so intense. And, And given that it's kind of flanked with all of these other set pieces from the book where people briefly all of a sudden encounter the divine in some way and are totally chill with it, you know, it it really sort of 
it makes Shadow seem really obstinate in a way that I just, I, I would like the show to just get over so we can move on to him having different reactions to things. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, one of the things that I thought the show was doing was trying to suggest that the reason why he's being pursued by all of these gods, you know, why, why they kind of want him to be their henchman is because mm-hmm. he kind of doesn't believe in anything. And so I right. thought maybe that would be, which isn't really, like it's sort of brought up a couple times in the book, but as you said in the book, it's much more that he... It isn't that he believes in everything. It's just that, yeah, he's really chill. And he's yeah. seen he's seen so much that he's kind of like, okay, well, now this is happening. All right, I just met a Central European death god. That's cool. Yeah, um, exactly. He has a big hammer. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that's neat. So, whereas, yeah, in he, there's a lot of resistance. And there's also, you know, his relationship with Laura is super different, which yeah. is, we're going to talk about more next week when we finally see Laura um, yeah. but we do see her at the end of the of this episode, um, mm-hmm. but he's much more. I don't know. He's a little bit more whiny. <laughs> There's a petulance. It's like he, he's he's petulant about stuff, and that bugs me because I think that in the book the relationship between Mr. Wednesday and uh, and Shadow works as well as it does because like Mr. Wednesday is so full of shit and Shadow totally sees this. And sometimes calls him on it, but in a really clear-eyed and straight man kind of way. He doesn't rant about it or whine about it or anything like that. He's just kind of, he cuts to the heart of something in loads of their conversations. There, there was a really beautiful moment, I thought, or at least it was a really beautiful line in, in this episode. I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but it's about the snow, the last of the sisters. She says you'd rather, what did you say? Something like you'd rather believe in nothing than a bear in the stars or something like that. Do you remember that line? And then Wednesday says something at the end where he says, you know, because he, he's freaking out about, did I make the snow? Did I make the yeah. snow? And he says, if you choose to believe you made snow, then you live the rest of your life believing you can do things that are impossible or you yeah. can believe it's a delusion. You know, and it's kind of like, what do you want to do here? Like, yeah. do you want to be crazy or do you want to be in a magical world? And I feel like that's the same question that the Zoria sister is asking, you know, what's better, dude? <laughs> you know, do you want to have the moon in your hand or do you want to just be a crazy person? And so I feel like the show is a little bit more interested in having us question whether any of this is real. Whereas in the book, it's hundred percent like we're never there's never a moment where we're like oh my god is shadow just crazy it's objectively the case that magic is happening everywhere and we're inside the heads of people who are magical in the novel whereas i think here you know we do see stuff happen all the time that's outside of shadow's head but those could also be his fantasies and i hope you know yeah like you said i hope that that gets resolved soon because it is like it's just like all right shadow get with the program Because, like, I thought the show was really, really explicitly already magical. I mean, when, when we're shown, I, I think I was talking about this with my agent, actually, right before this. Like, so just credit to, to Dong Wan Song for this insight. He says he feels the show has both too much point of view and not enough, which I think is a super good observation because he's talking about how, like, we're not only seeing things through Shadow's eyes, we're constantly seeing all of these other one-off characters having their own magical experiences with these gods, right? So, and, and there's never a sense that these are in any way connected to Shadow. So, like, I never see an implication in the show that he's imagining those other things, you know? It, it feels like the show is surrounding Shadow with all of these very explicit, undeniable instances of magic and fantasy, but 
he's not always getting like direct participation with them. So it just sort of feels like he's that much more hemmed in by like the necessity of belief, which I think is part of why I feel so impatient with him. It's like, but looks like literally, you know, three fifths of this episode were magical things happening. Why do you know? Why are you not yet on the same page as we, the viewers? Yeah, it never occurred to me that, that the show might be wanting to pay more than lip service to Shadow's reluctance to believe. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because we we need to see more of the story develop because I think you're right that in a weird way, we haven't seen that much of Shadow. Like we've seen him in every episode, but like there's a lot of other stuff going on and he's, you know, maybe one third of every episode. But I do think there is, I, I think that the fact that he is so reluctant and then he keeps emphasizing that he feels like he's in a dream, he feels like it's yeah. an illusion, that the show is a little bit flirting with that idea that he, mm-hmm. that maybe he's, I mean, he has had this horrible trauma. We've established yeah. that he has these weird ass dreams. So maybe these are part of his dreams. And mm. I, I don't think, I mean, I definitely don't think that's where the show is going. Like, yeah. I don't think it's going to be like, and then he wakes up in an insane asylum. If that happens, by the way, every Everyone is fired, okay? Everyone <laughs> in television is fired. Um, like that is, we are done. But I think that at least in these early episodes, you know, there's a, we're, we're meant to at least sympathize with his feeling that maybe he is crazy. And even though I agree with you, like he should just be chill with it at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. he he's seen so much and he he's supposed to be such a chill guy. You know, and, and Wednesday says to him, like, you know, there's not that much that scares you. So... Why is he so scared about making snow? You know, maybe, maybe, exactly. we'll, maybe we'll find out. Maybe this is something that's developing the show that's not really in the novel. So I wanted to ask you just a little bit about this story kind of in the context of your work as a fantasy writer. And I feel like in your work you do, sometimes you're dealing with fairy tales that are really outside, that are sort of really outside the realm of reality, but sometimes you bring reality together with fairy tales or with fantasy themes. And I wonder, I guess this is a huge question, but like, (laughs) when do you think that it's good to bring in reality with a fairy tale? Like when, when do you think the fairy tale should just be on its, in its own little place where it's like, okay, there's a woman sitting on top of a a glass mountain, like in your recent story, which is up up for the Locus Award, right? Yes. (laughs) So awesome. Thank you. It's like, I'm going to the Nebula Awards weekend soon and it's up for that and up for a Hugo and it's called Seasons of Glass and Iron and you can read it online. So everyone should check that out. That's a, I would say a pure fairy tale. Um, There's no moment where we kind of like are in the city or whatever, but you have other stories where you kind of have characters who are just regular people who have magical experiences. And so, yeah, I mean, and I think that's, that's the American gods idea is, you know, we have a little reality and a little fantasy and we smush them together. So as a Mm -hmm. writer, why, what, what's fun about doing that? Like, why do you, why do you get drawn to doing that? I always am struck by people's reluctance to think of fiction in general as fantasy, uh, because that is absolutely my tendency. I I feel like like what we call literary fiction or mainstream fiction or realist fiction or what have you is totally already under an umbrella of fantasy for me because narrative is profoundly unnatural. Like we make stories up about things all the time. And to do so, we highlight some things and background others we pick and choose what we're going to talk about and we create narrative where there isn't any. And to me, like that creation of narrative at all to tell a story with a beginning, middle and end is 
uh, is a kind of like act of will on the universe, sort of, to get really like roofy about it. So it's 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 already like this kind of magical act to me to tell stories. You're you're imposing your will on the universe in some way. And so it's it's really not that far a stretch for me to tell stories in which unrealistic things happen because stories are kind of about unrealism that still reveals truth in some way. There's this really great line that I totally mangle in, in T.S. Eliot's Tradition and the Individual Talent. I think it's in that essay. I always forget if it's that essay or the other one about the metaphysical poets. But he talks about how poetry breaks or dislocates, if necessary, language into its meaning. And I feel like fantasy does that to reality. Like fantasy breaks reality into its truth in the way that poetry can break language into its meaning. So like if people have recourse to poetry to talk about things that that they can't talk about with prose because it's just insufficient or the way that you know we, we sing about something that we can't necessarily talk about you know you, you put yourself into a totally different mode of being I feel like writing fantasy does that with reality it's like well our reality right now is so surreal that we need to address some aspect of it with recourse to fantasy because the experience of it is is so aberrant or is so I mean it doesn't have to be just aberrant it can be just extreme in some way. I think Ken Liu talks about how he he always looks at fantasy as a metaphor made literal. And that that's like where a lot of his fantasy writing comes from. And it's certainly, it's absolutely true in his absolutely gorgeous short story collection, like The Paper Menagerie and other stories. Yeah, it's so good. It's so, so good. And at the heart of most of the stories is a metaphor made literal. So, you know, there's one story where people are born with their souls as different objects and this one girl has a soul that is an ice cube and and like she spends a chunk of her life just trying to like she organizes her life around trying to prevent the ice cube from melting because she's sure that if it melts it's going to you know she's going to die and then it turns out that that's not the case that you know the at some point it melts but it's still water it's still there it's still and uh, the story is actually called phase shift and it's like this this metaphor so this whole story is a metaphor right for how we we can go through changes in our lives and like we are changed as people but you know we are there's there's a continuity there but the story is still explicitly and literally about a girl whose soul is an ice cube so in other words there's a kind of in a way fantasy is is telling a very realistic story and if you it's telling a truth i think it's telling a truth is the thing and i think neil gaiman talks about this as well is that there are stories about how storytelling is like i think there are like all sorts of folk stories about how a naked truth literally this this character named truth and no one can look at truth because truth is naked and everyone turns away but then truth you know meets story and story has some lovely clothes and story dresses truth and clothes and suddenly like people can look at truth again they can look at truth but then they can all disagree on what truth is because yeah it's covered up in this fancy outfit and exactly exactly and that's where you get critics (laughs) yeah exactly I, i think that any effective fiction is effective because it has made you with lies feel something true or experience something true but for me like you know whether you get there by telling a story about something really 
banal and literal versus telling a story with dragons or gods or whatever in is sort of irrelevant. I mean, it's not irrelevant. There are definitely important reasons for these differences and they function differently and all that stuff. But to me, they are still kind of partaking of the same root, that they are breaking reality into its truth, basically. I keep coming back to this show partly the same way I keep coming back to the book, you know? Like, I, I, I keep thinking about it. I keep turning it over and over. And I do feel like the show broadly so far is making mistakes and is making errors, or at least is, is presenting premises that, that don't cohere into the the conclusion that they want to show or what have you. But in spite of that, I really do appreciate the queer representation and the tenderness of it all. Like I always feel like torn between these poles of intense gratitude for Middle Eastern representation that is just not painful and a desire still to like not just be satisfied with that and to kind of push it a little farther. So I do want to say like I think it was the best episode of the season so far in terms of its storytelling. Things will jump out at me like the wrong Arabic or the awkwardness of someone speaking fluent Arabic with someone who is speaking it having learned it phonetically and trying to like still infuse those phonetically learned sentences with some kind of, you know, conversational inflection and stuff. But I, I mean, I have to say they, they both did really good jobs with it. Still, like, I am glad for that. Like, I think in that same article on Vulture, like, Brian Fuller talks about how he hopes that there are young Middle Eastern men masturbating to that scene because, I don't know, they it's on mainstream television and whatever. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I'm, that's, I also hope this. That's what I want from my work, too. I just, like, want people <laughs> to be masturbating to it. I mean, not all of it, like, just sometimes when you need to. <laughs> That's when you really know that you've gotten through to a, an audience is like when you're actually, when their their body responds. The biggest criticism I, I have of it is just that it's this combination of, I, I want to be grateful for the bog standard decency of not having represented Arabs and Middle Eastern people in general as like monsters, but I recognize that the means of them doing that is still by making a kind of homogenized idea of Arabness that can be represented with reference to cheesy ethnic-ish music that has no regional specificity, a mishmash of different Arabics and backgrounds that are supposed to all be one thing. And it's in a book that is supposed to be on some level about regional specificity, I guess. And and the tension between that and this kind of homogenizing, assimilating impulse of America, it feels like the show has kind of already succumbed to that latter thing. So, so, so that is where I'm kind of like, eh. But other than that, I still, I still really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining me. This was really awesome. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television that we're talking about maybe more than we should, thinking about definitely more than we should. Right now, we're watching American Gods. I'm Annalee Newitz, your host. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and I'll be back for the next five weeks recapping and discussing the new episodes with a special guest. So keep watching the show, keep listening to the podcast, and I'll hear you next week. <laughs>